Great. Well, hopefully you've got a notice sheet. I know that we've slightly run out of those. There is an outline of what I'm going to say in the inside of the notice sheet, and there will also be some slides uh, coming up. And if you've got a Bible, you might want to keep it open at that passage. Also, I think it's written out on the inside of your notice sheet. I, I want to start, though, with a, a super basic but really, really important question as we set out this morning. Let me ask you this. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Okay, imagine there were, there were two people stood up here at the front this morning. One of them said, I am a Christian. And the other one said, no, I am not a Christian. What would you expect to be true of the person who said, I am a Christian, and not true of the person who says, no, no, I'm not a Christian? I'll have a think what we think it might be. Maybe you'd say, oh, I know. It's about what people believe, isn't it? It's about what people believe. So, so the Christian, this will be the one who says, no, I believe in Jesus, I believe in his death, I believe in his resurrection. And the non-Christian will be the person who says, no, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in his death, and I don't believe in his resurrection. Now, listen, at one level, that's obviously true, isn't it? You cannot be a Christian without believing in Jesus and his death and resurrection. But the truth is, you can believe in those things and still not be a Christian, okay? I mean, just think about it. I'm sure that for most people in most of history have believed in the existence of Jesus Christ. His existence is simply a fact of history. When you uh, read the Gospels in the Bible, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you are reading is almost certainly, by most scholars, pretty much exactly what happened, right? So you know that that's history. It's like the existence of Henry VIII or Tutankhamun. But the truth is that lots of people have believed in those events without actually becoming a Christian. I think you want proof of that. I think probably the devil believes in all of those things, and no one would call him a Christian. Okay, you say, okay. So it's, it's more than just about what you believe in a kind of intellectual, factual kind of way. I understand that. I know what you're talking about. It's about your feelings, right? So, so the Christian will be the person who says, no, I feel sorry for the things that I've done wrong. And the non-Christian is the person who goes, no, I don't feel sorry for the things I've done wrong. Maybe that's the distinction. Well, again... It's certainly important, isn't it? You can't be a Christian without recognising that you have to say sorry to God for the things that you've done wrong. We've heard that, haven't we, in all of those testimonies. But actually it's true that lots of other people also believe that they have to say sorry to God for the things that they've done wrong as well, without becoming Christians. The Muslim would believe something very similar to that. Morality matters to them, and God is involved in that. The Jew believes something very similar. Anyone with any kind of vague belief in God believes in a moral God who has something to say about the things that we do, right or wrong. So that's not enough of an answer either. So what is a Christian? If it's not just about belief in facts or a certain set of feelings, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Well, let me try and show you two things which come from this passage this morning which show very, very clearly what a Christian is. And the first one is this. A Christian is someone to whom God has given a new life. This is why uh, Paul is saying in verse 12, he's contrasting life by the flesh, he calls it, and life by the spirit. The Christian, he says, is, is someone who is no longer obliged or indebted or a debtor to live according to the flesh. Now, Flesh here is a word that Paul loves to use of all of us by nature. Flesh in Paul's language is, is us living in rebellion against the God who made us. 
flesh is what uh, President Zelensky was talking about in Parliament a few weeks ago when he talked about, we will always have to fight against the dark side of humanity, he said. For him, he saw it in the oppression of his country by the Russians. But for Paul, in the book of Romans, that, that dark side of humanity, that flesh, is alive in all of us. You see it in lots of different ways, says Paul in the book of Romans. He says, you see it, get this, you see it in rebellion against parents, right? Envy, gossip, slander, ruthlessness, unkindness, to list some of what he says. But all of those flesh actions, he tells us, are are rooted in a rebellion against the God who made us. A rebellion which has invaded every corner of our lives. So, So lots of what we do, good or bad, is invaded by this fleshly, I'm going to live for me and not for God kind of thing. And we're obliged to live that life by nature. We're in debt to it, says Paul. Not against our will. It's not that we're all as bad as we could be, but more sort of that our identity as humans, as people, as people who, for the best will in the world, are incapable of living the good lives that they know they should live. Because somewhere deep in our hearts is a brokenness that we can't shake, where we've fallen out with the maker and become less than we know we should be. I don't know what you're thinking. You may be sitting there thinking, oh, goodness me, this is all a bit heavy, and I think he's probably over-exaggerated. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Well, if you think like that, and let me suggest that you ask someone who knows you really, really well. It's a bold question, but ask it. Have I ever been selfish? Have I ever been selfish? And brace yourself for their answer. Because Paul says we're all like that, and I'm sure he's right. But here's the point in verse 12. The Christian, something has happened to the Christian so that Paul can say that they are no longer debtors to live that life, that flesh life. Because, verse 13, something else is alive in you. Or probably better, someone else is alive in them. And that is the Spirit, the Spirit of God. So the life of the flesh is contrasted with new life by the Spirit. And in that power, the Christian is putting the flesh to death, being alive in a new way. Now, this is extraordinary. So, you know, concentrate hard, hold on to your hats. This is the key to everything this morning. The Christian is someone in whom God has planted his spirit so that they have a whole new life and a whole new identity. So they're no longer ruled by the flesh, by rebellion against him, but are ruled by and are alive by the spirit, the spirit of God. It doesn't mean just that they are a spiritual kind of person. Everyone's spiritual, really, aren't they, in that way? Rather, this is the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, living in their hearts, bringing a whole new kind of life, alive to God. So it's not just the Christian believes some facts or is uh, simply sorry for the things that they've done wrong. The Christian, by an action of God, is alive in a whole new way that they weren't before. They were dead in the flesh, and they're now alive in the spirit. They were an old creation. They are now a new creation. Now, Romans 8 begins with an explanation of how that happens, which is worth reading just before we go any further, so we've got an idea about what Paul is talking about. Look up at verse 1. It will come up on the screen if you've not got a Bible. Paul writes this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
Now, I spend a lot of my week reading the Bible, and I know that Bible language can be very dense. It's like lots of truths packed together like a tin of sardines, isn't it? So just concentrate, and let's have a look at what he's saying here. I'll try and be as simple as I can. Notice what's going on. Notice that actually this new life comes not by something in their own strength. He says that they are powerless, doesn't he, verse 3? Because the flesh is too weak to obey God and earn a new life. You know, these people who are fleshy, us who are fleshy, rebellious against God, cannot by our own efforts live a life that pleases God and earns his favour. We can't do it, we're too weak, he says. So instead, verse 3, God does it. How? Well, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So without sin himself, but in the likeness of flesh, as a man, to be a sin offering or come for sin, as he puts it. So that new life comes to the Christian, not by their work, but amazingly, by being included in Christ's work. So that in his death on the cross, our sinful rebellion, our darkness, if you like to use that word, can be killed, and we, verse 2, can through the Spirit be given life which is free from sin and death, and free to please God and be alive to him. See, his, this is the really important point, isn't it, for us this morning. You know, when, when we get into the baptistry later and we dunk our various candidates under the water, we are not saying, oh, they've got a new hobby and we'd like you all to know about it. We're not saying that. We're not saying that they've got a new culture called a Christian culture and they'd like to belong to that and they'd like you all to know that. They're not even saying, listen, we've changed our minds on a few facts of history and, you know, I've begun to understand that Jesus was a real person, he really existed, he really died and really rose again, and I'd like you all to know that. That's not what we're saying. All of those things might, to some extent, be involved, but fundamentally what we're saying in baptism is not something about what they have done, but what God has done for them. God has made them alive. God has taken their sin to the cross in the person of his Son and given them life by the Spirit. To use the language of the passage, they have died with Christ so that they might be alive by the Spirit. The verses that we read earlier have a really kind of cool way of saying what that now looks like. I don't know whether you notice the contrast. It says the old life of the flesh is described in verse 13, isn't it? He says, uh, living, by, living by the flesh which leads to death. Yeah? Living to death. And the contrast is putting to death that life by the Spirit, and that leads to life. Yeah? So you've got either living to die or dying to live. Do you notice that? kind of like an oxymoron, isn't it? Like hot snow or dry water or sunny whales. I know we've got some Welsh <laughs> folks here. But if we die, if all we do is live, we will die, eternally die. But if by the Spirit we put to death that life, then we will live, says Paul. Uh, let me just pause here for a minute. Let's make sure that we've grasped this together. I just think that probably... If you're not a Christian this morning, or this is one of your first time in church, I think what I'm trying to say to you is this. Being a Christian is way more significant than you probably thought it was. Way more significant. I don't know whether at school you ever did that Maslow hierarchy of needs thing. Did anyone do that at school? Anyone do Maslow? I am the only person who went to school. No, a few others of you went to school as well. You know, it starts at the bottom, doesn't it, with all the basic stuff in life and builds up. So you start at the bottom with food and shelter, uh, then you need safety and security. The next is love and friendship and then esteem. And at the top of everything is art. Anyone an artist in the room? That is like the, the highest things. The thing that you don't really need, but, you know, once you've got all these other things in place, you can draw a pretty picture if you'd like to, yeah? That's what it's saying. Now, I think probably if you 
if this is your first time thinking about these things, you might have thought that being a Christian was one of those things like drawing a pretty picture in life, you know, like something right at the very top of the pyramid, something you don't really need to do, but some people quite like to do it and say, hey, it's okay, they're a Christian, I'm going to come and watch them get baptised. But actually, you know, what Paul is saying here is being a Christian is a whole new foundation of the pyramid. It's a whole new way of being alive. So being a Christian is the most fundamental thing about us. You know, we trust in Christ like you eat food because actually our new life in Christ, life by the Spirit, is being alive to God in a whole new way that we weren't before. Being a Christian is someone who God has given new life. Secondly, though, that new life makes them a son. That new life makes them a son. We've only got a few more minutes, so let me try and explain this simply. Notice with me what he says this new life by the Spirit does. Look down at verse 14. It will come up on the slide again. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul is saying here that having this new spirit life, the life that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, means that we are adopted into God's family. We become children of God. And notice Uh, Not just children in general sense, but we become sons. We become sons. All of us become sons. Not because God doesn't like daughters, but because in Bible language, sons are inheritors. Heirs, as he puts it in verse 17. And that's something that we now all share. Male or female, black or white, rich or poor, young or old. Everyone who receives new life by the Spirit receives sonship. Sonship. I started, didn't I, with this question about, you know, the distinction, what is a Christian? Someone who says they are a Christian, somebody who says they're not a Christian, what would you expect the difference to be? I think this is perhaps the shortest answer that you can give. A Christian is someone who knows that God is their father. See, lots of other religions will give you ways to know God as God, or ways to try by your own efforts to please God and receive forgiveness for your sins. You know, lots of Modern secular people will try to give you ways to pretend that God is not really there and that none of this matters anymore. Pretending that the gospel accounts are made up and that the obvious isn't uh, isn't real. But only a genuine Christian can, with confidence and not fear, say of God, he's my loving father. He's my loving father. Abba. Father. And notice they know that not just in a kind of hard external fact like the way that we know one out one is two. They know it like a proper child knows their parent. They know it from the inside as well as from the outside notice. They feel it and know it. As verse 16, God's spirit tells their spirit, you belong to me. You're my child. I love you. So that we can call out to him, Abba, Father, the most tender word for Father both in neediness and desperation at times, but also in wonder, glory. So, of course, isn't it why Jesus taught uh, his disciples to pray, our Father in heaven? Because receiving new life from Jesus means that we share in Jesus' relationship with his Father in heaven. Let me try and illustrate this just for a moment while Neil sneaks back in the door and you all notice I don't know whether you like go-karting. Anyone like go-karting? I love go-karting. But imagine if you were trying to explain go-karting to someone who had never been go-karting. And you said, listen, go-karting's fantastic. You get to hear the engines. It's amazing, hearing the engines. And you get to kind of breathe the fumes, which is kind of 
I know everyone says it's bad for you, but it kind of it tastes great. You know, it's brilliant being in there. You get to hear the engines, breathe the fumes, and if, you, if you're fortunate, you might get to stand and get your photo taken. You might get a, like a cup to wave around in the air as well. If that's all you told them about go-karting, you would be missing the best bit about go-karting, which is what? Driving. Goodness. Driving. Is the that's the best bit about go-karting. If someone takes you go-karting and they don't let you drive the go-kart, you've been robbed, yeah? Because that is the best bit about go-karting. It's driving the car. Now, I wonder if sometimes when we explain what a Christian is or when we think about what it means for us if we call ourselves Christians, we miss out the best bit. You know, for sure, being a Christian means having your sins forgiven. Having your sins forgiven is fantastic. Zavon mentioned this, didn't he, in his testimony. This is brilliant. Imagine knowing that all the things that you have done wrong, that the God who will hold you to account one day has taken them all away. Imagine that. Can you think of anything more fantastic than that? Well, there is something more fantastic than that. Being a Christian gives you a new purpose too, doesn't it? You know, having a purpose in life is brilliant. So many people in our world are struggling because they have no sense of purpose or what their life is for. Being a Christian means that you have a sense of purpose. It's brilliant. But there's something better than that as well. Being a, a Christian means that you have a certain promise of, of eternal life when you die. That's great as well. We're all afraid of dying, aren't we? But imagine a promise, a solid, in-reality promise, that when you die, that's not the end, but the eternal glories of heaven await you. That's fantastic, but there's something better than that as well. What is it? It's knowing that God is your Father, that he loves you, that he will never leave you, that he will take care of you in this life, through death and into eternity, that you belong to him as a child and that you're an heir. That's fantastic. And that's the point of being a Christian. Now, that just leaves us with one really obvious question as we finish, and it's this. Can I ask you this? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? We're here this morning, aren't we, to witness and to declare that God has given this new life to our five baptism candidates. We're going to say of all of them that they are now sons of God, even the girls, you're sons of God. But as we witness that, the unavoidable question for all of us this morning is really about ourselves. I have no intention to make this super awkward. I'm not going to make anyone put their hand up or come to the front. You wouldn't even answer whether you'd driven a go-kart, so I'm not going to make you answer this question, okay? But I do want you to think for yourself that if you're here this morning and you thought that being a Christian was just about attending church or maybe agreeing to a few facts, it was like drawing a pretty picture with your life, can I ask you just to think this morning about whether you're really a Christian because being a Christian is miles better than just agreeing with a few facts or attending church. Becoming a Christian doesn't even begin with you doing something, does it? You know, Christian faith is not the act of doing. You know that, right? It's not a work that God requires of us. Christian faith isn't that because there's no work that we could do, yeah? Christian faith is about receiving, not doing. It's receiving, not doing. It's about receiving spiritual life from God, saying to God, listen, Lord, I know that there's nothing in me that deserves to receive this gift from you. I know that actually all the things that I have done would mean that you should not give it to me. But I know too that Jesus can take away all of my sin and that I can receive from you this new spirit life, eternal life, where I can know you as my Father. 
Now, if you've never done that before, I want to invite you this morning, maybe even as you're watching the baptism candidates plunge under the water, I'm inviting you this morning to do that, to receive by faith what the Spirit can do in your life by giving you new life through Christ. Now, many of you here, I know, you did that years ago, didn't you? And if that's this, you this morning, then this passage has something to say to you as well. In fact, I think it's probably the main point of the passage. You and I were the people that Paul was thinking about when he wrote these words. Look at verse 13. What does he say we should be doing? Putting to death the misdeeds of the body. See, Paul is not so naive to say that Christians are perfect, is he? No, he knows they're not. And actually, lots of Christians do really stupid things, don't they? And so the Christian is told to keep killing their old flesh, the nature that Jesus died to kill, we now keep killing. We don't kill the old nature fearing, oh dear, if I don't do a very good job of this, God might take away my new life. No, we don't do that. He tells us in verse 15 that we don't live in fear like that. Instead, we kill the old nature. You know, a bit like someone uh, smashes up the wheelchair when they're now able to walk, yeah? we're, We're getting rid of it because we don't need it anymore. We don't want it anymore. It reminds us of who we were. We want to live these new lives that God has given us. We don't need it, we're different. And nothing can change that, nothing can take us sonship away. Even though, as he says, we might share in the sufferings of Christ, still we can call out to God our Father with assurance and joy, because a Christian is someone who has been given new life by God, that new life makes them a son, and nothing can take it away. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much that being a Christian isn't about us doing something for you, but is about us receiving something you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this new life that can be ours by the Spirit. And we thank you for the ways that we are going to testify to that for these five baptism candidates. But pray for each of us, knowing that for each of us there is a day coming when we will stand before you. And we ask that we wouldn't try and do that in our own flesh, but that we'd do that with these new Holy Spirit lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.